here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. ProRisuShop.com, your only source for authentic ProRisu merch straight from Japan. Translation extraordinaire Yatsumi has helped more than 300 fans all across the world purchase authentic merchandise, and now he's bringing that savings to you. With over 300 items to choose from, ProRisuShop.com has the largest selection of New Japan and ProRisu merchandise you can't get anywhere else. Shirts, belts, trading cards, DVDs, and more from the biggest stars of Japan, like Tanahashi, Okada, Nakamura, and of course, the Bullet Club. Get them all for the same price you would pay in Japan, with worldwide shipping starting at only $6.99. For the very best in ProRisu merchandise across the world, the choice is clear. ProRisuShop.com that's P-U-R-O-R-E-S-U shop.com. ProRisu shop.com. You can be the King Kong banging on your chest. You can beat the world. You can beat the war. You can talk the guy go banging on his door. You can throw your hands up. You can beat the clock. You can move a mountain. You can break rocks. You can be a master. Don't wait for luck. Dedicate yourself and you go find yourself. Wrestling Podcast. I'm Rich Grage alongside, as always, Mr. Joe Lanzen. This is a uh, another part of our special edition or a special section of our podcast. We're talking about all things Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. We obviously did the first podcast with David Vixenspan, kind of going over changes to the ballot and all that good stuff. We've also had columns and a bunch of other good Hall of Fame coverage since then, but this is the first part of a long series. We're going to cover just about every category uh, in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. But this is our start. Before I introduce our special guest, though, Joe, how are you doing? Rich, I'm hanging in there. Uh, this is going to be a challenging region for us because uh, this is a tough. We, yeah. we, <laughs> I've already let our special guests know that we're 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 very ignorant to this category, and he's going to be doing the heavy lifting. But I think he's a he's the perfect candidate for it. Our guest today is uh, John Lister, and he's going to be our special guest expert for the European region of the uh, Hall of Fame ballot. How are you today, John? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. I hope you're doing well, because we're counting on you to carry this thing, (laughs) because our knowledge is very surface level at best with a lot of these candidates, so uh, uh, we're we're really looking forward to you doing a good job breaking everything down for us. Uh, Before we get started, though, on on diving right into the the ballot, uh, tell the listeners a little bit about you. Maybe some of the listeners who aren't as familiar, uh, you're a writer, a historian, and uh, and maybe get into some of the methodology you use when you look at your uh, Hall of Fame ballot and, 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 and sort of what strategies you use when you vote. Yeah, I mean, I've been uh, writing about wrestling for just coming up to about 25 years now and uh, currently write for Fighting Spirit magazine, which is, along with PWI, is one of, sort of the two remaining newsstand magazines in sort of the Western world. It's a British magazine, but available sort of throughout the world on a iTunes and Android apps and as well as writing 
pieces about the, the current scene. I have a, a regular series called Greetings Grapple Fans, which was the uh, sort of the opening line of uh, Kent Walton, the uh, TV announcer for wrestling for many years here. And that's looking back at uh, wrestlers from the, the TV era here. Uh, for the ones who are still alive, it's usually based on sort of a lengthy interview with them looking at their career inside and outside of the ring. Excellent, excellent. Now, you, you are a Hall of Fame voter. How, how many years have you been a voter? Um, I think this is probably my fourth or fifth year. Okay. Now, do you just vote in the European category, or do you vote in some of the other categories? What I normally do each year is I look at the ballot and sort of look at the names for each uh, each sort of area. And my sort of rule of thumb is if if I think I know enough to make sort of an informed decision on 75% of the candidates in a particular area, then then I'll do that. So normally I will vote in the uh, the European section, the modern US, and some years Japan, some years not uh, not Japan. Okay, are you a public ballot guy? Do you like to keep your ballot private? If we ask you who you voted for as we move along here, are you going to kayfabe us or what? No, um, no I, I keep my um, ballot private um, for sort of two main reasons. One is that I'm incredibly anal about sort of the, the whole um, sort of concept of the, the secret vote when it comes to sort of, you know, real life elections. And so to the point that I deliberately do it to wind up my wife because she hates the fact that I won't tell her who I vote for. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't think she particularly cares who I vote for in the, the observer, but I sort of carry on there. Also, because uh, I'm sort of writing about these guys and kind of interviewing a lot of the people who, who sort of turn up on the ballot, mm -hmm. I, I think there's kind of sort of a conflict of interest there to be sort of revealing who it is I'm voting and voting not. But I mean, you may be able to sort of get an insight into some of the guys who sort of I would be voting for and, and wouldn't be voting for, but sort of, yes, the, the, the secrecy of ballot is sort of something I very much respect. In other words, Rich, he's going to be dropping some hints. We're just, yeah, we're, we're going to have, have to, to listen careful. to some wink winks, and you're, yeah. you're good at noticing that. So, we'll, <laughs> well, you don't have to tell us, but you can give us kind of a wink for, for some guys. We'll, we'll definitely understand that. So, no, let's, uh, let's get into the European candidates here. Um, how do you, Joe, do you want to break it down candidate by candidate? Do you want to, this on-air production meeting, we're, we're very classic at this. I mean, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff to tackle here, and we, I can't, I can't even fathom where to begin I, in let's, Europe. Let's so. tackle it. Let's start with this. Let's start with what I feel is the most controversial name on the ballot, the name that's been getting uh, a ton of debate over the last couple of years, Big Daddy. From your perspective of somebody who is in the culture, um, where does he stand in the culture in terms of being a household name, or, or, or does he does he transcend wrestling the way that some people say? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he is without a doubt for anyone sort of who's been sort of around and grown up after sort of the 1960s. So really, I mean, anybody sort of under about the age of 60 now, he he's the most famous wrestler in 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 Britain other than unless you actually follow the, the business now, in which case it would probably be, you know, a Hogan or a John Cena, but to the, the man in the street. To give you an example of that, there's a TV show over here called Pointless, which is kind of a, a reverse uh, take on family fortune. So you, they sort of survey 100 people and you have to come up with the answer. It's correct, but the fewest members of the public gave it. And they did a round where they asked uh, 100 members of the public to look at photos of five wrestlers and see if they could identify them. 
and I think kind of ranged from Andre the Giant, I think about eight of 100 people had done it. Uh, sort of the most famous of the American ones were uh, Hulk Hogan and, the under, and, sorry, and The Rock, who I think were around about 15, 25, and then Big Daddy was on 70. So, I mean, that's wow. sort of what a cultural icon really, and his, his push was uh, kind of as much on mainstream entertainment, so sort of Saturday morning, kids' TV shows, he being commercials, um, sort of a, a sort of a part of pop culture for maybe sort of five to ten year run, uh, as much as he was sort of featured on, on the TV wrestling. And as far as this Hall of Fame candidacy, sort of looking at the numbers, uh, 2012, he had 23% of the vote. Uh, 2013, he got 38%. Do you see that sort of rising again this year? Has there been a little bit more research on him? Or is there sort of – because he's always, as, as Joe mentioned at the top, he's, he's very controversial and there's arguments and people that say they won't vote for him, people that say they will. Do you see any upward momentum for him, or do you kind of think that he's sort of going to hover around that that sort of 40% and, and – and, a little bit around that area for, for you know the majority of its time left on the ballot i think really that's where he's going to be and he's kind of his presence on the candidate is is reason with the, the way that the the maths works with uh the, the observer hall of fame where you've got to have the 60 percent of voters who cast a vote in that candidate I, I think he's kind of the reason why i'm not expecting anyone to get in for a few years because i think looking at the the voter base i kind of get an impression about uh, a 30 35 percent of people who vote absolutely see big daddy as the biggest candidate there is can't see why anyone else going in front of him they're always going to vote for him for no one else and i think it was probably your know, 35 40 percent of people who who would would never vote for big daddy they can't see him as a candidate at all and i think with that split it then makes it very hard for anyone to get 60 percent of of that group uh, of who do actually cast a, a vote. I think really when you look at Big Daddy, the argument is not does Big Daddy, you know, on a set of criteria deserve to be in. The argument is is the criteria of the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame the correct thing to use for a Wrestling Hall of Fame. So when you're you're taking into account uh, drawing power, in-ring working ability, uh, and sort of historical influence and, and impact, and saying that you you have to have something to offer in every category or be so outstanding in in one category that uh, it, it sort of makes up for the the lack of the others. Um, that really, when you look at it from that perspective, it's kind of hard to see how Teddy gets in. When you look at it from sort of a different perspective of you know who are the most famous wrestlers. Um, how do you kind of reflect a, a wrestling culture? Um, you, you get people who then sort of look at it and say, you know, it's absolutely ridiculous to have a Hall of Fame without the most famous wrestler um, sort of in British history and sort of on a, you know, sort of a per capita within their culture, arguably as, as, as big a name as, as Hulk Hogan was in America. Well, if we're folding his fame sort of into the uh, the influence portion of the criteria, uh, what is it do you think that that's keeping people from what now from what I understand he was a terrible worker <laughs> um, can, can you confirm that or, or, or do you have a different opinion on yeah that? I mean I would go beyond a terrible worker to point to the point that effectively he was a non-worker for sort of the, the, the bulk of his kind of Hall of Fame era career because though he had sort of 10 to 15 years at the beginning of his career as uh, sort of a actually a very muscular uh, sort of bodybuilder, heavyweight working traditional style. By the time he got the big push uh, in the, the daddy character, he was sort of in his mid-40s, coming up to sort of early 50s of his peak. And for 
I believe the last 16 years of his career, he only wrestled five singles matches. Everything else was tag matches, the vast majority of which he would only come in for sort of a hot tag at the end and and the finish. And that was partly because of his physical condition and also partly because the business changed so much that it was being completely built around one guy. But really really they didn't want to take the risk of of him sort of suffering any any physical damage and being unable unable to appear so was he a significant draw then yeah i mean he was certainly in terms of looking at you know was he draw for the observed fall of fame i'd say he's a strong draw with a couple of uh sort of caveats to it and certainly he was in that very rare category of of, of guys where him being on any show uh, would make a significant difference. Uh, you know, in, in the kind of order, you, you might well get double or three times your normal kind of crowd there. Um, in the same way, the sort of very few people really only kind of the, the Hogan-level kind of guy um, would would sort of make that kind of difference. The caveats to that is, is one is that he was doing this on a much smaller scale. So he had sort of a free Wembley Arena, 10,000 out and most of the time he was kind of working in in sort of much smaller venues and uh, the other sort of drawback was he was the kind of uh, person who would make a massive difference the first time he went in in an arena but he wasn't somebody you could bring back sort of every week or every month which in the past had been the big kind of way that the british uh, setup really worked so he was kind of a guy who who tended to only be booked once or twice a year in a particular venue the only place uh, he would appear regularly, uh, sort of week after week, would be in seaside towns during the summer, which was because you had a different audience every week of sort of people on vacation. So all, all of that considered, in your opinion, would he qualify as a Hall of Fame level draw? I, th- I think it's uh, in itself, uh, it's, it's sort of not exceptional enough to make up for uh, the sort of the mixed bag of the, the historical influence, which is how much weight do you put on it being a positive, uh, and also just the, the complete lack of, of of working ability. I mean, I kind of put him in. He, he's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum to working ability of a guy like a, a Chris Benoit or sort of Brian Danielson, most likely in a couple of years, where they've got in primarily on work. Um, so you kind of take in if if he's this slow down, he would I think. For him to get in based on his draw, he'd have to be Hogan-level draw. He'd have to be uh, the kind of person you'd look at and say, you know, he's one of the biggest draws in the history of wrestling mm-hmm. worldwide, which I think he sort of falls short from. All right, uh, moving on to another guy here that, that really stands out to me when I sort of look at the year-to-year numbers in Hall of Fame balloting. It's Kendo Nagasaki, who uh, in 2012, he had 10%. Uh, 2013 went all the way up to 39%. For people that aren't aware, is there any reason for that you know massive jump that, that he saw year-to-year? I think uh, him, and along with uh, quite a lot of other guys who sort of moved up um, from year-to-year, uh, may have been sort of people switching away from Big Daddy. And I think... Um, Mick McManus getting elected as is probably going to make a difference because I think to a lot of people who sort of outside Big Daddy, I think he's he was the most uh, sort of electable traditional Hall of Fame Carl Kant style candidate who kind of met all the the criteria. Um, so I think that's kind of opened up a spot for guys like Nagasaki, who was sort of very much a, a sort of a, a well known. I mean, I'd say. In terms of pure fame, 
uh, the five most recognisable characters are in, in sort of British wrestling history are, are Daddy and Giant Haystacks who sort of tied together Nick McManus and Jackie Palo from the sort of 60s and 70s era who again are sort of very tied together and Kendo Nagasaki who just had this uh, this utterly protected uh, character of like the masked guy who never showed any emotion uh, you you never sort of saw him during sort of his heyday sort of revealing anything about himself he sort of almost had this uh, kind of in, entirely sort of false backstory of sort of, you know, his real character as well. Um, so he, he kind of really started this very memorable character who sort of was able to carry on sort of making sort of guest appearances and sort of being a drawer in his own right, even, you know, 15, 20 years after he sort of given up wrestling. And sort of, I mean, it's kind of testament to kind of the power of a character that you could advertise a special appearance by, by Kendo Nagasaki which is literally a guy in a mask and it could have been any guy in a mask. And I think people just kind of trusted in how much he protects and believes character that you go along kind of knowing it was the original guy and sort of have this, this kind of aura around him. Now you mentioned Jackie Palo. Now he's, he's got the highest percentage. He's, he's been pretty steady at 46% for two years in a row here. And he's the closest to getting in out of anybody in the European bracket. Why do you think he hasn't gotten in, but his top rival uh, over the course of his career did? I think it's it's partly because uh, Palo was went uh, independent, kind of left the main promotional cartel joint promotions in the early seventies, started running his shows independent. So he kind of had slightly he had a decade or so less national TV exposure. Uh, also, I mean McManus was uh, the matchmaker for several years, sort of uh, the Booker kind of role over here. Uh, so he was sort of kept in the spotlight uh, a lot longer. And, Really, I think Palo's candidacy is a very similar kind of candidate to to McManus, and possibly slightly lesser in terms when you sort of go through the the specific point by point. Uh, that McManus was probably more of a traditional uh, kind of in ring worker, whereas Palo was kind of a lot more uh, kind of interacting with the crowd. Was kind of how he made his name, uh, whereas McManus was kind of more he was somebody sort of you you kind of didn't like but kind of respected and he was kind of this you he could kind of back up his his kind of his kind of actions where Palo would be more somebody sort of backed off a little plus you also had sort of had you know a slightly less long t longevity and kind of historical impact so I think his chances kind of depend on how you view McManus if, if you sort of see McManus as you know a slam dunk perfect perfect candidate for Hall of Fame I think uh, Palo then kind of seems to be sort of the next logical choice to to put in after him. I think if you are seeing McManus Moore as kind of a borderline who sort of just gets over, then I can see how you sort of look at Palo and say, yeah, he's kind of the one who sort of falls short of that divide decline. You know, you kind of alluded to it earlier, but two two other candidates here who are sort of joined at the hip. Uh, we already talked about Big Daddy, but then there's Giant Haystacks who uh, came onto the ballot last year and did not do well at all. Now, I think the interesting thing about him is he sort of had chances outside of the re – I mean, he, he had an All Japan tour in the mid-'80s. Of course, uh, maybe some of our listeners would be familiar with him as Loch Ness in WCW, where he had that uh, that brief run uh, during the uh, 
the beginnings of the Monday Night Wars. I believe, uh, and you can confirm this because I'm not 100% positive, that he was also uh, in the Australian version of WCW at one point. So he's more world-traveled than some of the other candidates here, but but why do you think uh, people don't see him as a strong candidate at all, you know, reflected by his voting total? I think he's really, it's kind of a case of, although you're meant to take kind of every wrestler in the uh, the nomination kind of on their merits and say, you know, are they in or are they out? And it's not really meant to have a benchmark. I think he's kind of similar enough to, to Daddy. Um, and sort of a lot of his fame is, is from being Daddy's opponent. But I think to people, once you've kind of made the decision that, you know, Big Daddy, if you're going to say, doesn't qualify for Hall of Fame, it, it's very hard to justify saying, oh, well, Haystacks is going to be in, Daddy isn't. Because though in some ways i think haystacks was uh you know more sort of versatile in in ring wrestler and you know he's certainly capable of a lot longer of sort of working a, a sort of a, a respectable if, if nothing else sort of singles match uh I, I i don't think that's kind of enough advantage to then say you know he overtakes big daddy and i, I think if you're sort of and unless you're purely you know putting daddy out because you don't like his his work and that's the one thing that's kind of keeping him out i think it's kind of quite hard to to kind of picture haystacks going in ahead of daddy mm-hmm. any any i do you have any kind of predictions of his momentum or or could it be downward momentum too where he just maybe is a guy that falls off the ballot anytime sooner or or do you kind of see him hovering around this this sort of you know he came in at 12 percent you sort of see him hovering around that for a while yeah i mean i wouldn't be surprised if he drops off in fact uh i was under the impression he may have dropped off a, a few years ago and, and being put on i'm not 100 percent sure of that uh but i mean that's always yeah we're always having trouble figuring that out yeah. I, I think chris harrington is trying to do some work on that but yeah I'll, let me see if if chris found that but it's it's obviously very hard to figure out when I mean, people drop looking off, at but... the uh the sort of the list it, it does pay the sort of dave is open to kind of putting kind of new names on every couple of years so i think that's kind of uh going to sort of work against uh against haystack so uh, i think he's kind of always going to be sort of in that sort of low low percentage to the sort of point of possibly being off the ballot at some point do you think you know like we've seen with ken patera i i think a lot of people who are 40 years old or younger who who really all their memories of him are of the post-prison Ken Patera when he was sort of washed up as a worker or whatnot. Do you think there's anything to maybe the idea that Haystacks gets hurt by people who only remember that run, that WCW run at the tail end of his career uh, where he was actually almost near death? I think he died a few years later where he was pretty brutal in the ring at that point. Do you think there's anything to maybe American voters having that fresh in their mind? And if they're voting in this uh, category, they're leaving them off because of just the, the terrible memories they had of him in WCW? Yeah, I mean, it's possible. Yeah, I mean, he, he actually uh, came back for sort of a break to the, the UK during his WCW run. Um, sort of the plan was to bring him back. And I mean, there was talk of sort of building him up to, to work with Hogan. But I mean, whether that was going to happen, nobody really knows. But I mean, he was actually did diagnosed with lymphoma uh, sort of a couple of months after that, which uh, sort of then you know, transpired into into his death uh, a couple of years later. Um, I mean, I, th- I think it would be very unfair to sort of judge him either way on, on that because that really was the, the absolute sort of tail end of, of his career and kind of, you know, not really a, a reflection of sort of what, what potential he may have had working over in the States. Uh, one, one guy um, 
that, that was fairly interesting. And Dylan Waco, or uh, Dylan Hills, rather, <laughs> I went by his, his username instead of his actual name. Uh, Dylan, he, he wrote an article for us um, at voicearrested.com and a part of our Hall of Fame coverage. Uh, it was five candidates to get, that you know deserve a closer look. And one of the guys he mentioned was Jim Briggs, who, who we sort of see here. Uh, he got 16% last year. And he's a guy that's that said is worth a closer look. I don't know if Dylan necessarily said he needed to get in. What are your thoughts on, uh, on, on Jim Briggs? And maybe can you describe him for people that aren't sort of aware of, of what he is and sort of what he stands for? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, he would probably be over sort of the entire 33-year 33, uh, 33 run of, of, of wrestling on, on ITV over in the UK. Uh, probably, you know, behind the sort of the five people I mentioned, sort of, you know, the top tier, the, the top kind of uh, mainstream fame superstars, he would probably be right up there on the top of, you know, the, the regular wrestlers who sort of appeared on the show. Uh I believe he's either the most or the second most number of matches on the TV, uh, sort of over a 30 year career, and, you know, certainly held a lot of titles, um, kind of worked with people of um, sort of a wide range of different styles, kind of at different weights, uh, and sort of transitioned later on to being the guy who sort of worked with up and coming youngsters who, you know, had to sort of hadn't really filled out physically yet so they were still down in sort of lightweight welterweight divisions um so he he was sort of you know a real kind of mainstay in the ring and kind of had the the character of being this really vicious nasty guy i mean every every sort of pub in britain there would be a jim breaks in there he's kind of a um <laughs> very easy uh character to identify with this kind of sort of slightly undersized guy a bit of a chip on his shoulder um but you knew you didn't want to start something because he was nasty and you knew he could do some real damage but his sort of character in ring he he kind of develops into uh crybaby jim breaks which would always be if you know when the the baby face sort of got their upper hand and started sort of putting him in some pain he would you know go absolutely crazy and start you know making a real fuss jumping up and down about it um and so it was and kind of the hypocrisy of that i think really kind of got over with the crowd and he was actually um one of the most enjoyable interviews we've we've done for fighting spirit magazine um because he was like very open sort of talking about sort of his kind of psychology in the ring he sort of always remembered that he was one who sort of had the most to fear from sort of the, the violent crowd because a lot of these sort of heavyweight wrestlers nobody in the crowd would you know, they might jeer at them, sort of throw stuff, and they never actually go after them. Whereas uh, people always sort of thought maybe they could take gym breaks, and, and when they sort of got a bit hurt up, they would actually go after him. You know, uh, Horst Hoffman must have been uh, one heck of a hand because he was the number one vote getter percentage wise among former wrestlers last year. And do you see him as just strictly, he's only at 21%. Uh, you know, the, the odds are not good that he's ever going to get in. But is he someone who is strictly a work rate candidate, or do you see other strengths uh, on his resume? I'm certainly from a UK rather than uh, sort of continental Europe pers perspective. That was certainly the case. I mean, he uh, he may have worked in the UK, but it certainly wasn't a sort of a sustained run. And I think certainly, yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a work candidate, I think, largely from his uh, his stuff in Japan. Um, really, I mean, he's not a name that sort of comes up when you sort of talk to longtime fans and, and historians in the UK. And, and really, I mean, the most uh, sort of notable point that I've uh, sort of come across him from a UK perspective is actually when the Muhammad Ali Inoki match um, was going on with sort of a closed circuit around the different places in the States. 
the advertising for the closed circuit uh, and the, the TV uh, coverage of that over here actually had uh, Stan Hans, oh, so sorry, Bruno Sammartino was listed as wrestling Horst Hoffman on that show rather than Stan Hansen. And I've never been able to sort of discover whether that was kind of an original plan for, for Bruno working on that show before the injury, which we set up a Hansen match, or if it was just a case of... Uh, you know, for European promoters thought that may have made a sort of a, a more interesting eye catching name to kind of the audience over here. You think there's an argument that could be made that he would be better served on the uh, Japanese portion of the ballot? Yeah, I mean, certainly, yeah. Um, it, it's really kind of a case of the problems with kind of these artificial uh, sorts of areas. Uh, because I mean, certainly he, he's not someone, but I think particularly British. Uh, kind of voters would have a a specific kind of level of uh, sort of expertise and ability to judge him as compared to sort of people from Japan. Uh, moving on to, there's a few other candidates here. We've talked about guys w with sort of upward momentum. A uh, few guys that actually have uh, downward momentum, uh, Rollerbar, Mark Rocco, and Johnny Saint both fell uh, in, in 2013 off of their 2012. Uh, any sort of reason for this or just sort of, because it wasn't big falls. They were, they were minor falls. Anything that, you know, we can sort of glean from that or is it just sort of voters just one year they're on the next year they're off or, or anything that we can really kind of look at with those two yeah i mean i think it's it's just statistical variation i think a lot of that is to do with kind of who other who else is on the candidate as to whether that would sort of attract somebody to voting the european uh the european category who wouldn't mm -hmm. normally do so which then sort of brings all the other candidates down um, I, I don't think there's been sort of any particular case made for against uh, Rocco or Saint in the last couple of years, which sort of drastically changed the, the way people view their candidacy. You know, we're talking about some of the better workers on the ballot now. So let me ask you, um, who out of all of these candidates has the best reputation as a worker? And then sort of as a, a secondary question, who do you personally think is the best worker on the ballot? Uh, I think really if, uh, the ones who are on this year, I mean, really Rocco, Saint and Brakes are kind of a, what the, the three who in sort of a traditional uh, sort of pro style would be the ones who stand out. And I mean, Rocco is, is more a case of kind of influence. Uh, he really sort of changed the style in, in Britain's B along with Dynamite Kids, you know, much more fast paced, kind of aggressive, high flying stuff. Uh, Saint was kind of... Uh, the one who's sort of particularly to American voters is sort of always associated with a, what is kind of described as a British style. And really, I mean, it was it was one style among sort of several in, in the UK, but the, the sort of the chain wrestling, the kind of escapology where he sort of put himself into holds and uh, sort of get out of them, sort of just leave his, his opponents sitting there completely baffled. Um, I mean, I know a younger wrestler who sort of worked with him in 1996 uh, and literally uh the sort of the, the pre-match discussion was right we know I, i'm gonna sort of take over in in round three you just stand there and 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 i'll do a thing and sort of the, the way that johnny saint was moving was just making it look like you know both guys were sort of locked in this this titanic struggle i think breaks is probably sort of the most well-rounded of the sort of more traditional style of being able to uh, sort of, you know, work with different holds, kind of do the traditional wrestling uh, and sort of work more of a, a babyface heel kind of match. Whereas the, uh, you know, Rocco was kind of 
uh, kind of all out there. And he a lot of time kind of wrestle fellow heels as, as well as baby faces, just with really aggressive style. Uh, and Saint was kind of more um, sort of the technical exhibition kind of side of it. I think Brakes was one who was able to kind of best uh, sort of transfer his role into to the traditional pro style. Uh, breaking the, breaking off from the from the actual ballot a little bit here for for people that are sort of interested in maybe learning more or, or watching more of these guys, how available is a lot of their matches? Is is, is YouTube becoming obviously because we're we're seeing that more and more. I mean, we we just this past week got you know fifties and sixties stuff from the Chicago Film Archive that that a lot of people hadn't seen before. How accessible is a lot of this footage for for a majority of these guys? Because we're talking about obviously different time periods here for some of them, but for people that are like, hey, look, I, you're, you're mentioning Jim Breaks. He sounds like he's a lot of fun. I should you know seek it out. How how easy is it to find that? Or is it still a little tough to find the European? Certainly, I mean, for a lot of the, uh, the later candidates on this from sort of 70s and 80s, there's actually a tremendous amount there. Uh, the reason for that is that in 2004, uh, you know, before that, you pretty much had to rely on kind of tape trading from people who had recorded it from the television at the time, which obviously in the, the 70s and early 80s was kind of fairly limited because of the, the cost of uh, VTRs back then, you know, the, the cost of blank tapes and so on. Um, in 2004, they launched a, a channel called The Wrestling Channel on satellite television here, uh, which one of the sort of flagship shows on that was licensing the ITV archive. And altogether, they had about 350 uh, one-hour shows airing of that old footage. And the, the ITV um, archive has pretty much everything that was ever recorded for broadcast on television rather than airing live, which means um, bits and pieces from the early 70s and then most stuff from about 1974 until ITV stopped showing wrestling in 1988. So a lot of that was um, recorded and it was shown over and over and over again, partly because uh, the channel had a deal where if they paid a flat fee and they could repeat it. Uh, partly because it was by a long way the uh, highest rated programming on the channel and partly because it was the, the only programming that they could repeat uh, many, many times. They could show sort of a three or four hour block of this and it would still sort of get an audience, which they sort of put down to something which was not their original target audience of a sort of, you know, 20 something uh, sort of hardcore wrestling fans, but it turned out a lot of, people who had watched it back in in the day and were now sort of retirees in their sort of 60s and 70s so were watching a lot of tv during the day and sort of the nostalgia they would sit down and sort of watch it for hours on end so a lot of people recorded that when it was on uh whether you onto hard drive recorders onto dvds and sort of now have that in sort of dis digital quality copies that are now being uploaded to youtube so certainly uh you know, Daddy Haystacks, Breaks, uh, Nagasaki, Rocco, Saint. There's a, a lot of their stuff on, on YouTube that you can look out for. Cool. Otto Wands is on the ballot this year. Now, I, I kind of have a multi-layered question here. Um, obviously, he ran a territory in, in Germany and Austria. Now, did that territory have any sort of impact or penetration or English penetration whatsoever? I mean, to uh, to the wrestling fans, it, it wouldn't have been something they had any kind of knowledge of to a great extent or sort of any interest or effect. Uh, to a particular type of wrestler, particularly the heavyweights for most of the time, uh, it was kind of a, a very important uh, sort of source where you could go over there and work on the tournaments. 
um, the way that the, the tournaments worked there, for sort of a round robin tournament that would run for about six weeks in a particular venue, say Hanover, and then they would move to Bremen for sort of another six weeks, and this would go on for sort of about three or four months towards the end of the year. So uh, a lot of the wrestlers would like to sort of get books over there because it was pretty decent money. And you would, because it was the same venue night after night, you could kind of have a trailer there, live sort of behind the venue, uh, so you didn't have any travel to worry about. Uh, you had pretty good food, and sort of all you had to do was, you know, train during the day, sort of have a bit of a sunbathe, wrestle at the night, uh, and then uh, sort of, you know, into the early hours, you were on the Reaper Band in Hanover or, or Hamburg. So you had, you know, a whole range of. Uh, different levels of, of shall we say post-show excitement uh, if, if that was what took your fancy uh, so it was really you know good kind of good good money location and so particularly for the wrestlers who worked full-time which was not everyone in in britain quite a lot of the wrestlers would kind of have uh, sort of regular jobs or part-time jobs and then would work kind of mainly in their area places they could get to within sort of a couple of hours of their, their workplace uh, then you have sort of a smaller category of uh, wrestlers who are sort of running full-time uh, Dale Martin who was covered for sort of uh, southern England and was sort of one of the main sort of promoters within uh, joint promotions would actually have a uh, sort of a minibus van but they would sort of the wrestlers would meet up and they would take them to the shows every night, the ones who are kind of working full time. So in between that and sort of the Japan tours and then working in Europe, you could sort of make a, a good living working all year round. Do you get the sense that, I mean, obviously it was, it was his territory, uh, but do you get the sense that he deserved to be the top guy or was it a situation where he was just pushing himself as the top guy? Yeah, I mean, certainly it was a, a bit of both. I mean, he certainly he had the size that he was kind of credible in in that way as as being the top guy. And um, I, I think his his work is a lot of people have sort of seen some of his matches and sort of say he was terrible. I mean, I've certainly seen several matches with him and Vader, but uh, you know, they're big man clashing, sort of no no sort of real nonsense, no sort of niceties to it, but like kind of real impactful dramatic matches. That's either, uh, depending on how you look at it, is sort of a, a, a nod to Bant saying, you know, he, he was okay in the wrestling department. You sort of, you can sort of look him as kind of a Hall of Fame, fame candidate along with sort of categories. It's either that or is, you know, a tremendous uh, vote of confidence for why Vader absolutely does belong in the Hall of Fame. You know, where, where the truth lies, it's sort of, you know, kind of hard to tell. Um, I, I think he's kind of one of those candidates where you're looking partly him as as kind of a stars wrestler, partly as a promoter, and it's it's how you sort of uh, weigh up those those two and and kind of the balance of of what the criteria is. If you could sort of handicap for him, where, where do you sort of see him in this first year uh, getting vote wise? Is is it you know fairly high, you know falling off the ballot, or or, or maybe just kind of a guess on a number or or kind of a handicap of of where you think he would be? I think it's it's really hard to tell that without sort of knowing more about the I believe there's a hundred or so people voted in mm-hmm. the, the European candidacy last year. So I mean it's a case of how that splits between kind of primarily people who, who know the UK scene sort of wouldn't uh, really know enough to sort of judge him. Uh, how many uh, sort of genuine experts on, on sort of continental Europe who can kind of put him in a better context as to 
what sort of a star he was and and how much of it was just him him being promoter and then also whether you have any kind of uh more japanese or sorts of american voters who know enough about a couple of other candidates where we consider voting in that category in that case uh you you do kind of have the kind of his awa title run which you can look at both ways i think uh, a lot of people uh will sort of look at it uh where he he bought the title run and kind of count that as almost a negative really i mean another way of looking at it is you know yes he did that but i mean giant barber did that and it's it's really you can say he must he would have had to have you know a certain level of credibility that the awa would say you know we can take the money off him let him have his title run for it it's it's not going to kind of affect the credibility of our title that's the way i look at it um you know it wasn't as if they were just letting anybody walk into the promotion and, and purchase a title run uh, it was <laughs> it was more of a matter of it was beneficial to both sides in those situations during that era because they had it was giving their title more worldwide credibility to have these worldwide stars have runs with their belts and these were short runs anyway and it was obviously beneficial to you know uh, guys like Otto Lanz where they could put that on their resume and and and, and use that to help draw back uh, in their own territory so i'm not i'm not sure that i necessarily view it as I, I'm not I don't I, I'm not sure if I view it as a strong positive but I definitely don't view it as a negative so uh, moving on from Wands though you know we talked about some of the top workers on the ballot how about in terms of, of who are the who are some of the strongest draws here on, on the European ballot um, I think certainly you've got uh, we've talked about sort of uh, the pros and cons of of, uh, of daddy I mean Breaks uh, certainly depending on how you look at uh, kind of measuring draw because it's it's not so much you know he headlined this show that did ten thousand was normally doing doing five thousand because the way the British setup worked uh, people tended not to you know, a lot of them didn't drive the countries kind of a lot more closer together in terms of the cities so you didn't really kind of set up where you ran a city you'd run it every week or every every month and you were sort of appealing to people from sort of two or three hours radius around trying to bring them in uh every city of any kind of size uh had a weekly show uh every sort of smaller town would have a show either every fortnight or, or every month and joint promotions alone who are sort of the people who have a tv contract were running 15 shows a night most uh, most of the time and this is kind of i mean to put that into context you're looking at they covered roughly the same kind of uh, geographical size area and a similar kind of proportion uh, population to the wwf territory of sort of 60s and 70s across the northeast and obviously that was you know doing much bigger crowds less often and running you know two or three shows a night as opposed to sort of 15 so really you had to at any time you needed 30 wrestlers a minimum who were sort of capable of being able to headline shows so i, I think that makes kind of people like breaks and saints uh kind of very interesting candidates in sort of the, the context of the hall of fame because these were 150 pound guys who who were sort of capable of headlining a show uh purely of the the lists that are on there other than than daddy is really palo uh as sort of the you know, one of the big draws of the, the 60s and 70s uh and a good example of that is the feud with with mick mcmanus uh where for one of their big shows at the royal albert hall which was the 
kind of the closest thing you had to the, the premiere venue with sort of the bigger shows of the month, uh, sort of in, in London. Uh, one of their sort of climactic bouts, they actually have ticket prices three times uh, for that which was being charged for sort of normal shows in that year, but didn't feature those two in the main event. And they were able to sort of, you know, put prices up three times and, and still sort of draw good crowds. I mean, that's a, a good indication of kind of the level of, of interest that they had. Uh, on the flip side, who do you see, if anybody, sort of falling off the ballot this year? We mentioned a few names, you know, you know, strewn about when we were sort of talking about it, but are there a few that sort of stand out to you that, you know, have absolutely no chance and, and, and could possibly just be Yeah, I think the, there's the, the one other candidate we haven't mentioned so far, which is Billy Joyce. Um, oh, right. He's right. a guy, I, uh, we, you know, there's, as far as I know, certainly no tape existing that anyone's seen. There's kind of a few fans who would uh, kind of remember him from sort of 1960s. And he's really kind of uh, looking at his candidacy. He is kind of a Billy Robinson kind of case for being in the Hall of Fame. That's somebody who didn't travel, so he doesn't have the sort of the American and the Japanese and the European uh, kind of uh, element to his game. And he he was kind of this very interesting kind of culture of, of of British wrestling up in Wigan, where he was primarily somebody who who wrestled, um, what's called the language style, which was genuine, uh, catch wrestling, which. It, it sounds absolutely crazy, but uh, the idea would work because it was legitimate wrestling. But unlike something like Pancras, where you took the striking out of it um, and sort of made it submissions only, uh, the, the catch wrestling was uh, pure sort of grappling, but you could get either a pin or a submission, which is something that sounds like it shouldn't work at all. But uh, Billy Robinson sort of has explained it. But actually, once you uh, you allow pinfalls, that actually opens up all sorts of missions because if you can maneuver somebody into a pin, they have to either roll out of it or bridge out of it, and that immediately opens sort of their limbs up, particularly their arms up for sort of hooking into a submission hold. So there's kind of he he was one of these guys who was uh, arguably one of the the best kind of came from that culture and was a British heavyweight champion in the sort of pro style for many years, which was partly because he. Uh, was you know not a showman kind of wrestler who was sort of for sort of fans for sort of the more the, the excitement sort of babyface heel kind of stuff, uh, and by putting him in in title matches, uh, you could actually charge extra money uh, for ticket prices. You put it up; it was a, a, a shilling, which was sort of a British unit currency, but you charge a sh- shilling shilling extra when you had a title match. So the title in itself would be a draw, and also. Um, particularly in sort of 50s and 60s, the promoters liked the idea of uh, the champions being people with uh, a legitimate wrestling background just for the for sake of credibility. So nobody could sort of, people who, who knew enough about kind of wrestling to know what was, you know, real, what would really work, couldn't point to it and say, you know, your champions are phonies. And the, I mean, Joyce is probably the, the extreme example of that. Uh, because he was British champion for many years, eventually he dropped the title to uh, Billy Robinson, who was sort of somebody who had trained alongside him in the, the Snake Pit in Wigan. And uh, Robinson always told the story that, that Joyce uh, pretty much came to a point, you know, from a business 
perspective, it, it was time to sort of pass the belt onto him, sort of uh, help establish him. He wouldn't do that until Robinson was good enough that he could actually beat him in, in a shoot in the gym. Well, you know, he sounds like a, a pretty significant star for his time and certainly somebody who was a, a great worker in his style. Do you think it's just the lack of footage that's sinking him? I think, yeah, I mean, footage and sort of uh, kind of evidence as to, to him kind of being a draw in his own right. And it's, it's really, I think he's old enough that he would be a candidate that you uh, isn't going to get voted in. I think he's almost... A, kind of the era of uh, the people who sort of uh, the historians uh, veterans committee as it were would sort of have to kind of actively put together a case for and try and uh, get him in that way on the flip side of, of uh, Rich's question as we start to wrap things up here um, we've pretty much covered everybody on the ballot who do you view as maybe the two or three strongest candidates I know you mentioned early on that you don't see anybody getting in correct yeah, I think just because of the, the, the way the master is going to work out with uh, sort of daddy kind of dividing the audience, it is going to find be difficult to sort of get 60 percent of, of people uh, who kind of agree on a candidate either way. Yeah, because Powell is still 14 uh, percent off and he's the closest one. So it is going to be difficult. But who who do you see as maybe the two or three strongest candidates on the ballot here? I, I think I mean, Palo certainly from the, you know, just the, the pure classical, you know, what is a, a from the observer perspective, Hall of Fame candidate of, of the blend of being, you know, in ring ability, uh, you know, drawing power and being sort of, you know, a significant historical figure. Um, I mean, he really passed the test of, you know, can you tell the history of British wrestling without mentioning the name Jackie Palo? And you, you, you really can't. He was, you know, absolutely in the 50s and 60s, you know, synonymous with with wrestling um you know people would you know kind of if you ever have to give an example of, of a wrestler you know maybe if you're you know a comedian kind of making a cultural reference or something it'd be mick madison and jackie Palo. uh i think other than that i mean daddy is is kind of on his 40 percent so it's it's hard to see him making that up to the 60 percent but you know there's kind of always that possibility but depending on uh the the makeup of the uh for voters in a particular year and you know whether you, you sort of the people who are being added are in the camp where you know they see him he's a slam dunk you know regardless of the specific criteria you're you're sort of looking at him from the he has to be in he's you know for fame category i'm not sure if that's ever going to take him to 60 percent um other than that i think you you kind of have uh a lot of the candidates have sort of a breaks Rocco Saint kind of level Nagasaki as well, where you can make a case for them, but it's kind of hard to see uh, unless there's kind of an, uh, an orchestrated, you know, campaign of everybody's going to vote for this guy this year to get him in. Uh, I think it's hard to see sort of any of them kind of breaking out of the pack. Do you think? Uh, do you think that's something that maybe needs to happen a little bit more in in, in the European, you know, for, for, for voters of the European? Because we'll see a lot of, of American voters sort of rally behind a guy, or you know, that happens, you know, from time to time in Mexico. Is that something that doesn't happen in Europe with the, with the candidates, or is there? Is it just? It, you sort of mentioned it. Is it something that maybe that would would help get some guys in? Because as you said, it might be a while till another guy gets in from Europe. Yeah, I mean, I think partly for a couple of reasons that's unlikely. I mean, personally, I'm I'm kind of opposed to, to that idea. I, I'm sort of mm -hmm. a, a very purist of you. You look at it. You 
uh, you know, pick everyone you think is eligible and off those. If you've got more than 10, you pick the best 10 candidates. You don't try to, to game the system. I think also uh, there's kind of uh, less knowledge of, you know, who the base of voters are for the European uh, candidates. I mean, there were about 100 people last year who, who voted in the European category. I certainly couldn't name, you know, anywhere close to 100 people of who who I would know who are voting in that, who uh, I will certainly class as, you know, having a particular expertise or knowledge of the European category. So kind of without that knowledge, it, it would certainly be kind of hard to sort of bring together a coalition, as it were, to get behind a candidate. You know, I thought of another Big Daddy question. I, I heard Dave Meltzer mention once that he never does well among uh, the former wrestlers or even active wrestlers, wrestlers in general. Um, you know, and I've heard stories that he was not very well liked among wrestlers. What what can you tell us about that? Is there any truth to that? Yeah, it really depends on kind of who the, the wrestler is. And I think it's a case actually where uh, sort of the bigger the name, the, the, the wrestler, the sort of more likely they are to be anti-Big Daddy because – as we sort of talked about how you had this 15 shows a night at, at times kind of that model um the big daddy push was a big change to that of really getting behind this one guy uh which really it, it meant that his show would do well if you were sort of a lower card guy on that that was great news because you'd be working in front of you know, double the crowd um and a lot of the time the the promoter would sort of reflect that in your payoff particularly if you know you were working with daddy so that was you know the, the more money than you'd see than anywhere else uh if you were sort of a headliner elsewhere uh but you'd sort of look at that as a, a negative because there's sort of less attention being it and that kind of made you made it harder for you to draw um sort of you know there were for less uh, exposure less stars particularly uh in the case of heels because a lot of the heels would sort of be built up to wrestle daddy would sort of lose very decisively and then sort of lost a, a lot of their heat so i think there's a lot of resentment and i'm enjoying the, the daddy era whilst his shows were doing well there's kind of a big contraction in the business overall which is partly uh sort of the economy the, the country particularly in the early 80s really sort of did hit the, the sort of working class audience uh but partly his sort of style and the way he was portrayed didn't lend itself to the the, the weekly shows as sort of building up the rivalries so i mean the the two biggest regular venues, which were Royal Albert Hall and uh, Bellevue in Manchester, which were both could seat uh, a little over 5,000 for wrestling and, you know, in, in their peaks would, would be doing sort of close to or for sort of turn away sellouts. Uh, they both stopped running wrestling uh, regularly during the Big Daddy era. So, I mean, that's kind of a, a black mark against him and, and something that uh, a lot of, particularly wrestlers who had been active kind of in the 60s and the early 70s uh, would would sort of really see him sort of as the, if nothing else, the, the symbol of a kind of a decline of British wrestling. I think there's certainly an argument that if you are willing to give him the credit uh, for sort of good times, you also have to give him for the blame for the bad times, even though to an extent that was the push rather than the, the man himself. It, it's kind of two two sides of the, the same coin. So one more question before we wrap things up. More of a general question about the uh, Observer Hall of Fame ballot. Uh, nobody in the European category is in danger of this, but there was a rule change this year. The uh, the 15 years and less than 50% and you will be removed from the ballot uh, clause that, that's been added. What's your take on that? How do you feel about that new rule? 
I think I can see uh, certainly see kind of the logic to it, uh, particularly in uh, the uh, the modern sort of last thirty years U.S. candidate, where it's it's going to get very clogged, and you get to a point where you know nobody's ever going to get in because everywhere the votes sort of being split so many ways. Uh, I, I can see maybe it was something that should have been sort of given a couple of years notice before it started taking effect uh, to kind of uh, stretch out the effect of people sort of panicking and going, you know, I've always considered this guy kind of, you know, my 11th or 12th best candidate and I've got to vote for him this year. Otherwise, that's it. It's, it's kind of uh, he's off. So maybe sort of a, a couple of years uh, kind of uh, breathing space for that uh, would have uh sort of stretched out that effect so it's sort of not so sharp where where people are sort of having to think about uh you know do i vote for the 10 best candidates uh in my view or do i try to protect the ones that i think are in danger of falling off because i think that that adds sort of an extra level of confusion to the voting mm -hmm. all right john before we get out of here do you want to let people know where they can find your work where they can follow you on twitter and all that other good stuff yeah Fighting Spirit magazine is where I write the, the monthly column. Uh, if you're in the UK, you can get it from WH uh, Smith, the, the news agent. Uh, the rest of the world, you can either order a print subscription or uh, you can go to the Fighting Spirit magazine website where you can get it as an app for uh, iPad and iPhone uh, for the uh, Android system. Uh, or you can also view it uh, online uh, on, on the website. And that actually, the digital version, as well as being sort of uh, an exact replica of uh, the printed page, you will get... It's uh, a great app, too. Uh, it's yeah, awesome. Not, uh, not to interrupt, links, but it's unbelievable app. Links are put in uh, throughout the piece. Uh, so, for example, if you know I'm talking about uh, Jim Brakes in an article, and he says, you know, this so-and-so thing happened in this match with with jim breaks but actually be a link uh through to the youtube piece so it really makes it sort of interactive and adds that sort of extra value um if you've got a kindle uh the author of three books uh slamphology which is a collection of uh articles from sort of back when i was writing for fanzines and three very lengthy travelogues of trips i made uh, to the us in the mid 90s going to places like the Channel 5 studios in Memphis, VCW Arena, the Sportatorium, and sort of just catching the, the tail end of the territories and kind of the last time you could do those loops. And then there's uh, Greetings Grapple Fans, which is a collection of uh, articles I wrote for the Fight Network magazine, uh, sort of news internet site in uh, Canada and States around about 2008, which is split kind of evenly between historical articles about the British scene and sort of uh, modern day uh, British wrestling kind of looking at the sort of different characters and kind of the, the way the scene was then. And also I have a blog uh, called ProWrestlingBooks.com. Which has uh, sort of news updates on upcoming titles and sort of a, a, an ever-expanding collection of uh, reviews that I'm doing of all sorts of wrestling books, past and present. And the idea eventually is that's going to become sort of the, the ultimate resource for if you're considering buying a wrestling book, you can go straight there and kind of look at review and get an idea of where it's uh, worth uh, going out for your while. Particular emphasis on books that sort of out of print, uh, you can only get sort of, you know, used through eBay and Amazon. Uh, so I'm trying to give you an idea as to which ones, you know, worth paying the extra money and hunting down. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, you know it's lessons lesson learned myself back from uh you know i was earning a, a bit more money and had a, a, a bit more sort of disposable income and would buy every wrestling book going back in the <laughs> sort of uh, the pre have a nice day foley things when there was you know a limited enough uh, range of books but you that was a genuine possibility the idea of owning every wrestling book there ever was um so yeah a, a few few in gyms there and a, a few books that you know really weren't worth worth paying the premium for well, I hope oh, yeah, I, 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 I hope you didn't buy, I, I hope you didn't buy China's book. I hope you didn't end up with that one. Funnily enough, uh, I, I reviewed that bit, that this week, um, and I took help back. <laughs> oh, back. I had a very limited amount of time to review that, so I managed to do that in in two lines. And that was, you know, I think my conclusion really was that China China got a lot more out of writing that book than than anybody would have from reading it. <laughs> I, th- I think that's. I know uh, fair the, my most disappointing one was the Rock book, which I, I should have known when I was a kid that that probably wasn't going to be good. But I was just so mad when I read that book. That one just got me real bad, and I, I was so excited for that one. But that's my fault. I'll let that. Yeah, well, what are you going to do? Some of these wrestling books are are, are pretty terrible. But uh, but John, I want to thank you for coming on. This was very informative. I know that uh, for me personally, I learned a lot because this was a real blind spot for me uh, with some of these candidates, and hopefully the listeners uh, will learn a lot from this too. Don't walk the